You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. If you're a first-time guest, welcome. My name is Jamal. I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and we want to welcome you into uh, this space where we uh, get to celebrate the fact that Christ is risen and that we have placed our faith, our trust, and our hope in him. Uh, Today, we are starting a new series called This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. And I want to pray as we start this new series that the Lord would meet us where we are. Lord, I pray that you would capture our attention, that you would awaken in us through your spirit a deep desire to be a people who is faithful to you, who is seeking to grow in knowledge concerning you, and who as a result is cultivating godliness in the day-to-day. I beg you, Lord, to speak, for your servants are listening. In the matchless, victorious, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. As we begin this uh, series today and, uh, and start this five-week journey through the book of Titus, uh, we're going to look at the introduction of Paul, or what is called the salutation. And we see in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, that Paul writes these words. To Titus, my true son, and our common faith. Last week, we looked at the Great Commission as we concluded our series in Matthew. And we talked about, as a church, how God was calling us to be gritty disciples who make disciples. How every single person who was made alive in Christ Jesus is not just called to be saved, but to serve God's kingdom by replicating uh, what they are learning um, into the lives of those who are just beginning their journey or who are at a different place in their journey. And I think the book of Titus is a perfect follow-up to our journey uh, through Matthew And we see here that Paul has lived his life as a gritty disciple maker. Paul is the perfect example of a person who met Jesus, was changed by him, and who gave his life away to others in his going. And we see in verse 4, chapter 1, that one of the people that he poured his life out to was a young man by the name of Titus. Now, Titus is is not Jewish as Paul is. We know that the Apostle Paul um, often called himself the Jew of all Jews. He was a devout Jew 
who loved his Hebrew lineage and took great pride in that. But Paul was a cross-cultural disciple maker. And one of the disciples that he got to pour in and raise up was Titus to the point that Titus uh, is now considered to be Paul's spiritual son. And through the years, years of pouring into Titus, Paul has now raised up Titus to be a lieutenant of sorts. Paul has raised him up and given him great responsibility. And this comes after years of development. We read in the book of uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, as well as Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, that Titus accompanied Paul on some difficult journeys, that Titus often would accompany Paul in difficult situations, and he learned how uh, to pastor through it. In verse 5, Paul tells us the reason that he is leaving Titus, his spiritual son, um, behind in Crete uh, to do the work. Verse 5 says, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and, as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. So this young minister who was discipled by Paul has been left behind in Crete in order to minister to young converts. And his responsibility is to set right what was left undone, which is actually a medical term that gives a picture of a broken bone being reset or set into its proper place. But what is Paul's vision for the church in Crete? What is his ultimate goal? In Titus chapter 2, verse 10, picking up in the middle of a, a sentence, Paul says this, that he wants them to demonstrate utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God, our Savior, in everything. So Paul leaves behind Titus to set in order or to make right what they left undone when they traveled uh, to Crete uh, some time ago. And what he ultimately wants him to do is to beautify the teachings of Jesus. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is beautiful by himself. And teachings about Jesus is beautiful in themselves. But the people of God adorn add luster to the teachings of Jesus as they live out his teaching, both in word and deed. The people of God adorn the teachings of Christ when they live with both feet in Christ, not one foot in the world and another foot in Christ. So Paul is saying, Titus, I believe that God desperately wants to build a beautiful church in the midst of Crete. And I love this because where other people look at Crete and they see a problem, Paul sees gospel opportunity. Paul's imagination is is running wild as he writes this young pastor, this disciple who, even though he may be young, is experienced, his his imagination is running wild, and he's thinking to himself, what if God built a house 
church movement? What if God planted churches all throughout Crete? And what if this beautiful island was filled with beautiful people who are transforming the island from the inside out because they are living out the gospel of Jesus Christ? What confidence Paul has in the gospel? What confidence Paul has in his disciple lead? And that's what we're going to talk about as we look at this series. We're going to talk about Christ's beautiful church and how when we live out the gospel, when we live out the gospel, we beautify, we adorn, we make even more luster the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are in the world. And so we're going to go on a five-week journey. Week one, this week, we're going to look at having a beautiful confidence. A beautiful church is a church that has a beautiful confidence. Next week, we're going to look at what it looks like to have beautiful leadership. Week three, we're going to talk about beautiful relationships, how we adorn the teachings of Christ through beautiful relationships. Week four, we're going to look at what does it mean to be beautiful witnesses, how the gospel impacts the public square. And then week five, we're going to look at this beautiful church, which essentially is going to be a summary of all of the weeks. And we're going to look at how Paul, in just a few verses, closes out his letter and gives us some great nuggets so that we can continue to cultivate beauty. And so that's where we're going. And in order to go there and to be a beautiful church, we need to understand a little bit more about the setting and about Crete. Crete is a beautiful island off the coast of Greece and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, I spent some time this week just researching it and uh, looking at the tourist websites, and I read a fascinating article about 10 things to do in uh, Crete on that island. So I'm going to be trying to go on vacation there once things clear up. But when Paul was writing to Crete, Crete was notorious uh, for all the wrong reasons. Crete's culture was notorious in the ancient world. As we read in verse uh, 12 of chapter 1, if you scroll down in your Bibles, you'll see this. Paul, in quoting another poet or prophet of Crete, says this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Uh, Crete was kind of known as... Uh, in a similar way that the Las Vegas Strip would be known. Um, the people of Crete had created a culture in which there was a lot of subdu- subdu- uh, subduction, as well as um, just an excessive amount of gluttony in every area. A Crete was a training center for Roman soldiers and mercenaries. Crete was also a major stopping point for ships that were crossing through the Mediterranean. And even though this is true, Crete also had a large population of Jewish people there. In fact, Crete was uh, so bad that one of the Greek words that we have for liar, Cretizo, means to be a Cretan. Uh, They were seen as people who had a hard time in telling the truth. So Paul today is going to help us to cultivate a beautiful church, by showing us the importance of preaching a beautiful gospel that announces the hope of eternal life. And I love what it says here. 
that is promised by a God who cannot lie. Look at verse two. In hope of eternal life, that God, by a God who cannot lie. And the main takeaway today is going to be this. Beautiful confidence comes when you fix your faith on a God who promises eternal life and who does not lie. When you fix your faith on a God who promises eternal life and does not lie. So let's walk through this introduction real quick. We see in verse one, Paul says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So Paul, as he does in most of his letters, he begins with this salutation, this introduction. He's like, what's up? What's popping? What's popping? What's going on? Here's what I need you to know about me. I am a servant of God, a servant of God. Some of your translations say either the word bondservant or even slave. If you study the Old Testament, you'll see that there were two types of slave. One was a temporary slave. And this was a slave who would uh, uh, be a, a servant to a master for a very specific period of time. Now, slavery amongst Israel, amongst the Jewish people, was limited. It was practiced different than amongst others, maybe in the uh, Greco-Roman world. And the way that it was different is is that a slave would become a servant of a master, uh, normally in two, uh, their debt was paid. And that was up to a seven-year period. So every seven years, uh, slaves would be released Uh, from their servitude uh, with the Sabbath cycle, um, or also what we call the year of Jubilee. But for Jews, slaves were not uh, permanent unless they chose to be permanent. So a slave could go to their master and say, uh, Master, I want to stay in this role of servitude to you uh, for the rest of my life. And they became what was known as a bond servant. And so what Paul says here to open up his letter is, I am a bond servant of God, which means I am a servant of God until I die. This is not a temporary call. This is not something that I'm just trying for a specific period of time. Uh, This is not something that uh, I'm just a test driving. This is my call until I die. And Paul identifies himself in a lowly way, in a humble way, though he is a man that God is using all over uh, the world as he's planting churches and discipling people. He never moves past the identity of a servant. And not only is Paul a servant, but he says, I'm also an apostle. Now, when we look at this word apostle, we want to see that this word can be used in a technical way as well as in a general way. The technical way for apostle points us to the 12 apostles of Jesus, those who experienced the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul is technically an apostle uh, like that, one of the originals whom Jesus commissioned, sent out um, to be a special messenger for him. But as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that he is an apostle abnormally born. In other words, he became an apostle in a different way than the other apostles. 
He experienced Jesus Christ and the power of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, Personally, when Jesus appeared to him, when he was living in sin, persecuting the church, Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus. So Paul became a very special messenger of Jesus. But if we are going to be a beautiful church, like the church in Crete, like what Paul is trying to set up through uh, Titus, uh, we have to accept those two identities as well. We are called to be servants. We are slaves, bondservants of Christ. And it's not a temporary thing. It's a lifelong pursuit and commitment. And not only are we bondservants, but we are also called to be apostles, lowercase a, not capital A, apostles. For the word apostle simply means to be a a sent one, to be a messenger. And we talked about last week how every single person who is saved is saved to serve. We are saved to be messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul lays the groundwork by saying, I am two things, Titus. I am a servant of God, not of man. (laughs) I'm not a servant of, of man first and foremost. I am a servant of God and I am apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, my life is all about Jesus. My life is all about Jesus because I have been redeemed by Jesus because I was lost when I thought that I was found, because I was dead in my trespasses and sin. But God made me alive uh, together with Christ by grace through faith. And so my question for you today is, have you adopted the mindset of Paul? Do you see yourself as a servant of Christ? Do you see yourself as a sent one of Christ? My heart was just pumping with joy as I walked into the sanctuary today, and I saw uh, so many people coming back to church. Um, So many people saying, I know that we're not completely out of this pandemic. Things are improving, but I want to gather with the people of God because I am a servant of God. I've been saved for a purpose, and that is to to be um, a, a sent one for God. And I need the people of God. I need the preaching of God's word to be encouraged to continue to do so in the midst of a culture that does not have Christian virtue. In the midst of a culture that is trying to uh, convince me that we as a society have outgrown God. We have outgrown uh, this philosophy that says that this world was created by an intelligent designer for a specific purpose so that we would uh, be known by him and make him known uh, to others. Have you fixed your mind on that? Unfortunately, while this sanctuary may be filled with people who have fixed their mind on being servants and being sent ones, there's also a lot of people who has fallen wayside during this period. As their faith over the last year and, and maybe not meeting with the people of God has slowly eroded or diminished and they have begun to entertain the lies of Satan that says life could actually be more enjoyable, more beautiful without sound doctrine, 
without the people of God. And I believe that's what Paul is doing here as he's writing this young Christians at Crete. He is trying to remind them of what they received in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to encourage them to persevere amidst a culture that is is filling their hearts and their minds with lies. Paul is reminding them that they are the elect of God who have become a part of God's family by faith. Look at verse 1. For the faith of God's elect, I love this sentence, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So Paul here points out that his purpose, his mission in life, in essence, is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect, for the faith of those who have been chosen by God. And when you hear the word faith, uh, think of the word trust. Uh, Paul is a servant and an apostle for this reason. And when we talk about those who are elect, Paul believed that God elected and predestined a people to be saved, but he did so in such a way that it did not do a violence to their will and their responsibility to believe the gospel. As Charles Spurgeon said uh, when talking about the elect, as well as wrestling with the fact that we're man is saved by grace, he wrote this, he, God, saves man by grace. And if men perish, they perish justly by their own fault. How, says someone, do you reconcile these two doctrines? My dear brethren, I never reconcile two friends, never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. So the the election, the calling uh, of of God's people to be the people of God before the foundation of the world, as a result of God's grace, unmerited favor, nothing uh, in and of themselves, um, God uh, calls uh, his people. They respond by faith to him. And Paul says, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So Paul points out here the the importance of the knowledge of the truth. We live in a society in which truth is relative. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. The Bible teaches that that is foolish, that there is only true truth, and that God is the one who determines what true truth is. And those who are saved, those who are part of the elect of God, are those who put all of their faith and their trust on God's true truth. And they are those who are committed to growing in his knowledge of truth. Now, notice what Paul does here, he says, that leads to godliness. This is fascinating. Paul gives us an incredible chain in this kind of run-on sentence that he has that goes all the way to verse 4. This picture that he is, he is a servant of God, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ for or on behalf or as a result of the faith uh, of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to, God, to, to godliness. So Paul says faith, genuine saving faith, leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to godly living. When a person listens to sound theology and receives it with a servant's heart, it produces right living. 
And if you take out any one of these three aspects, faith, sanctifying truth, or godly living, it all comes apart. In order to have godly living, one must walk by faith. In order to walk by faith, one must commit themselves to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In order to live a godly life of virtue, which is the opposite of the way that the Cretans was living, a life which was marked by lying or deception, a life that was marked by gluttony or excessiveness, a life that was marked by laziness, in order to create a virtuous heart that is marked by truth, hard work, and self-control, one must place their, place their whole faith, all of their faith and trust in the knowledge of God. And that's what Paul is saying. Creden, Christians need to hear this as the Cretan's pride uh, didn't come from Paul's God or from Jesus Christ, but their pride came um, from another God, a Greek God by the name of Zeus. Cretans were proud, and they often claimed that the Greek God Zeus was their chief God. Zeus, they would teach, was born on their island, and they often loved to tell stories about his underhanded character, his, subju- his subduction, and his lying ways. And so Paul wants to make it clear that Jesus Christ is different from Zeus, that the God that they worship is not a God that would lie. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, Moses writes, God is not a man that he might lie or the son of man that he might change his mind. Paul is creating a beautiful church by setting this church's mind on sound theology and saying, if you have a servant's heart and if you take in sound theology, you will live in such a way that it will adorn, it will add luster to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. He's preaching this in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Paul's emphasis is on the immutable ways of God, the truth-telling ways of God. He's saying you can have confidence in God because he doesn't lie. If your faith is wobbly, if, if, if your faith is eroding, if you are on a quest to de- demolish your faith because you're discouraged at maybe evangelical culture or some preacher or pastor who has let you down or some inconsistencies that you see in other Christians walk, I want to encourage you to set your face on Jesus, to set your face on God to set it on his word because his word is truth and it does not change. And where man may lie and man may fail and our doctrines may be applied in oppressive and dumb ways, God's ways are not oppressive. God's way is everlasting. God's way is beautiful. 
God's way is good. God's way leads to human flourishing. God's way leads to joy. That's why Paul ends with Titus. He says, grace and peace to you. God's way is a way of grace, unmerited, undeserved favor. It's a way of compassion. It's a way of peace. And some of you all are demolishing and deconstructing your faith and you don't got no peace because you're living in the ways of Zeus rather than in the ways of Jesus. You're looking to the ways of the Cretans rather than the ways of Christ. And Christ's invitation to you is to remember the peace, to remember the joy that you had upon believing in the gospel, to remember that you couldn't help yourself, you couldn't save yourself, but God being rich in mercy came and got you and gave you hope and gave you a word. Sound theology received with a servant's heart leads to godly living. So I want to invite you in the next up and coming weeks to join me as we walk through this book to learn how together to adorn the teachings of Christ. And as we land this plane, I just want to ask you a few questions. One, is the truth of God's word having a sanctifying effect on your life? Are you growing in holiness? Or has Satan deceived you and convinced you that God doesn't care about you growing in godliness? Are you growing and looking more like Jesus or are you slowly becoming and looking like this culture? Two, are you becoming a more faithful bondservant of Jesus Christ? Are you taking in the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself in such a way that your life is becoming less and less self-centered and more Christ-centered? Or are you becoming more self-centered and selfish? Is your life all about you, your needs, your desires, your timetable, your schedule, your hopes, your dreams? Is it slowly becoming about everybody serving you so that you can be happy? Or are you believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says the, the way forward is actually down? It's a life of humility, a life of servitude, a life of serving others for the good of God's kingdom. Third, is your faith breaking down in a particular area? And if so, what lie are you telling yourself? What script are you running through your mind? Is it the lie that God doesn't love you because you don't get to get what said person gets or because this one thing hadn't come true for you? Is it that God isn't good because you're suffering? Is it that God is a killjoy because your areas of temptation and perhaps addiction give you a temporary relief and, and, and you, you want that? What lies are you believing? What do you need to repent of? 
That's my next question. Last question. Do you have a spiritual father or mother? If you're not growing in, in, God, in holiness, if you're not becoming a more faithful bondservant, if you're stuck in the pattern of believing the lies of Satan, who can you call and talk to? Who's your Paul? Who can you call and talk to? So we close, I want to challenge us two ways this week. First way I want to challenge us is, is to read the book of uh, Titus every day this week. Titus is three chapters, which takes, and I time myself, uh, seven minutes if you don't stop and look at your phone, about 15 if you check, check Facebook in between each chapter, right? <laughs> so go somewhere in between and take 10 minutes, silence your phone, and just read the book of Titus. Read the book of Titus. And if you can't, and that's a too big of a commitment, read a chapter a day and just meditate on a chapter. Read it uh, and, and, and ask yourself, what does this chapter uh, reveal about me? What does this chapter teach me about Jesus? What is Jesus inviting me to do today? Let's pray. Precious Lord, as we start this book on uh, the beautiful church, I pray, Father God, that you would help us to be a, a beautiful people who is full of gospel hope, gospel hope for Shelby Park, gospel hope for the city of Louisville, a people who look at our city, and rather than see a person who sees all the problems, that we look and see opportunity, that if we just simply submit ourselves by faith uh, to the word of Christ, uh, that you can empower us to look more like Jesus and thereby beautify the teachings of Jesus in the public space. And Father, I pray that you would raise us up to be a people of faith, a people of, of knowledge that leads to godliness. And I pray for the person who's doing the spiritual moonwalk, who's been slowly walking away from Jesus because they are listening to the lies of Satan, that you would draw them back to your word this week and that you would begin to sanctify them, that you would begin to allow your word to take root in their heart so that they would grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every week we take a meal together called communion. This meal reminds us of Jesus' faithfulness to us. In just a second, we're going to take it uh, together. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you not to partake in this meal, but rather I want you to think about the message that you just heard, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he offers salvation, forgiveness of sin, and reconciliation uh, with God as you place your trust, your weight, your hope on Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here and you've been trying it your way, you've been following the culture's way, and you are empty. You are joyless. I want to personally testify and tell you that joy is found in Jesus, that Jesus is not a harsh taskmaster, but rather he is one who invites you into a life of rest as you experience his undeserved favor, his undeserved goodness, and as you learn to live out of that. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we break it, give thanks. 
and we drink out of the cup. The bread represents the body of Jesus, which was broken for us. The cup represents the blood of Jesus, which was shed for us. You can now take the cup that is in front of you and eat the wafer. And as you eat it, remember that this is Christ's body broken for you. And you can drink the juice. And as you drink it, drink and remember that this is the blood of Jesus, which is shed for you. Let's stand and worship. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.